0: As you know, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and uh, during the, the singing, I thought, here's Paul chained to a guard, and he's probably streaming this worship music. If he could, right? Th- th- those songs would have been apropos for Paul um, as he's writing the letter to the Philippians. Uh, and so we had the opportunity this morning to do the same thing, to sing, to express our love, our gratitude to the Lord. And um, that's always a good opportunity for all of us. Hey, if you're here for the first time, if you're watching online for the first time, thanks for taking time to do that. Uh, as Alexa mentioned, you want to fill out that Blue Connect card, bring it to Guest Central in the foyer following the gathering. And you get some nifty uh, gifts inside the bag. Uh, And so you also want to pull up, if you're streaming, pull up uh, the notes, the outline for this morning's talk. Uh, If you need a pin, you can come to church. We have them in the back here. (laughs) But if you need a Bible, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles on the back table for those of you in the auditorium. And uh, pick them up, grab it. Um, we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But uh, thanks, thanks for coming out. Uh, Amanda Jonas uh, is here from Youth with a Mission. She serves down in, um, in Florida at that base. Uh, I know she's here because I saw her, but I don't... Oh, yes, there you go. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Good, 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 good. What else? What else is going on? (laughs) Man, last Sunday, I sure enjoyed Dave Ogren's talk. I really did. I, uh, he spoke at a men's retreat up north, um, uh, this, this past week. And, um, Um, so yeah, it's, it's cool. It's just cool to have the opportunity to teach out of God's word. Yeah, it is really is. It's a, it's a treasure. So shall we begin? We are going to Philippians chapter 3, and um, we'll be reading the appropriate verses in a moment. But before that, in 1962, uh, the television series The Twilight Zone tells a story of a man, a very vain, brutal man. He's bunkered in his apartment. He's imprisoned by what he perceives the world for what it is, and it's a planet inhabited by people who deserve to die. And the episode begins, like always, with the introduction of uh, their narrator, Rod Sterling. Uh, He introduces the self-absorbed character. That's Oliver Krangel, he says, a dealer in poison, a bad-tempered, rude man. And then he goes on uh, talking about Krangel's metaphor- metamorphosis into becoming an evil man, poisoned by the gangrene of pride to the status of what he thinks is an avenging angel. Uh, he sees himself as upright, self righteous, dedicated, and fearsome. Well, Krangel is a man with no em- empathy. He rages against people he never met. He demands their employers to fire them. He calls on law enforcement to arrest them. Uh, Krangel has said, you know, he's, he feels like he's the judge over the world. He's got this self-righteous attitude. And he proclaims a guilty sentence on everybody else on the planet. And then in the process of really hating people, he comes up with a plan to purge the world of these individuals. And so he calls the FBI and tells them at 4 p.m. that day, all the world's despicable evil people will be easy to identify and to imprison. Krangel has developed a machine that will shrink them to a height of two feet. And so justice will be served in his eyes, evildoers will be disclosed, and he will be seen for the hero that he feels he is. And as that fateful hour draws near, Krangel can hardly contain himself with the excitement. I mean, he's just so excited. And uh, he's almost out of a, out of his mind with the anticipation of what he's in the process of of going to do. And so at four o'clock he hurries to his window in his apartment to celebrate the day of reckoning. But to to his surprise, he is too small to look out the window. He, Krangle, has been shrunk himself. He stands two feet tall. Now, do you know a Mr. Krangle? Anybody? Maybe you can, you see a face in front of you, somebody that you can identify with, they have uh, self-centered. They're despicable oppressors. They—they they view the world from a perch of arrogance. Um, they bully, uh, they scorn, and they seek to exterminate. Do you know that the Saul of Tarsus was a model of Oliver Crangle? He was. When you look at Oliver Krangle, you would say, Man, that sure reminds me of the Apostle Paul. And when you see what was before Christ and after Christ, who would have thought uh, Oliver Krangle a potential candidate for putting his faith in Christ? When you look at Saul of Tarsus, the same thing. Um, A man who hated Christians, he was out to destroy them, he was brutal. And in the process, God did something about it. Now, you and I may not look at ourselves, our past, as being a Saul of Tarsus, but we were sinners. One sin is enough to keep us out of heaven. And so God did something amazing about it, allowing his son, his only son, to go to the cross to pay for our sin debt. So let's go to the book of Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up at verse 6. This is Paul, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Kind of sounds like Oliver Krangel, doesn't it? And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. In other words, he's perching himself as being self-righteous. He's the man. He's spiritual. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Aren't you glad for that? It's all on God. You know, he's the one that makes us right, and so we can rest in that. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opportunity we had to sing to you, to praise you, to tell you how great you are. Help us, Lord, to stay engaged in your word as we walk through it, that your spirit will tap us on the shoulder, uh, expose areas maybe that we look a little bit like Oliver Krangle, too. Man, we need your help. And so today we're trusting you to do a good work in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, Apostle Paul had a collision. We're going to talk more about that in a, in a moment with the Lord. Um God got his attention, and he didn't change one religion to another. He didn't uh, change rites, ceremonies, uh, rules, regulation for another. Um, He didn't get a new religion. He didn't change churches after his Damascus Road experience. But he was radically converted. I tell you what, man. When you look at the day when when Saul put his faith in Christ, um, he he was never the same. I think a lot of followers of Christ, once they put their faith in Christ, they hit the stop button, the pause button, and they say, "Man, now that i'm my name is in the book of life, I can just coast into heaven, but I'm telling you, man, you are missing so much more. Uh, the daily, involvement of God's Spirit working in and through you to conform you more into the character of Jesus Christ. That is, that is what? <laughs> yeah, man, it's incredible, and you're missing out on that. Um, John Pollock wrote the book, The Man Who Shook the World, describes Paul this way. Paul could not believe what he heard and saw. All his convictions, intellect and training, his reputation, his self-respect demanded that Jesus should not be alive again. He, He played for time and replied, Who are you, Lord? And used the mode address, which might mean no more than your honor. Because when you look in Acts 9, when he calls him Lord, it's not a capital L, it's a small l. And then Jesus responds, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It's hard for you, this persecuting. And so um, Paul had an encounter with Christ. And he ultimately says, "What, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do with My life. And so we look at Acts 3 and we see what kind of man this Paul was before he had an encounter with Christ. Really, I'm a wild man on the loose, seeking to destroy every bit of evidence of Christianity on the face of the earth in that day. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. It sounds like Oliver Crangle, doesn't it? Hmm? I think so. Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on him. What ticked Paul off? Or we should say Saul. What ticked him off about Christianity? He was following all the rules and regulations. You'd think Paul would get a good night's sleep. you think he would be at peace with himself. But somewhere inside of him, he was tormented. And he could not rest until he arrested every known believer on the face of the earth. That was his plan. That was his mission in life. Authentic Christianity is a threat, friend. That's why the devil, the evil one, the accuser of the brethren, he wants to silence those followers of Christ who are passionately living for Jesus getting to know him more, living for him, serving him. Why? Because it's a threat to humanity. When human beings see authentic Christianity in motion, man, they feel threatened. And some, in turn, put their faith in Christ because they say, man, I want what they have. And others say, I don't want that because I want to live my life the way I want to. Maybe that's you today. And so, we see that Saul of Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey today, um, heavily Muslim country right now, um, he had an encounter with the living God, just like you, just like me. When we put our faith in Christ, we have an encounter. Maybe you're not on a horse. Maybe you're not... (laughs) Blinded by a bright light, but we all have an encounter with Christ. So let's, let's go back to number three in your notes. Um, we're not going we'll to review the past. We'll, we uh, kind of landed on number three two weeks ago. Um, and we'll pick it up there. Verses seven and eight, I once thought these things were value, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. When you read the beginning of Acts chapter 9, um, if you could get next to Saul, you would say his blood was boiling. He, He was passionate about destroying Christianity. He was on a murderous uh, rampage towards Damascus. And so he charged north of Jerusalem, 150 miles north, um, sweeping across Persia. And uh, his fury, man, intensified. He he was a man really out of control. It really was. And... um, If you were a follower of Jesus and that region of the world at that day, you would not be looking forward to hear Saul knocking at your front door. You know? It's not like you wake up in the morning and think to yourself, I hope Saul knocks on my front door today. No, that would be a bad thing. It would be a challenge. So uh, Acts 9, 3, and 4, let's go back there. Uh, Let's pull up the map, guys. uh, so here's Damascus um, here's Israel right here uh, let's go to the next one that's kind of an overview And uh, oh boy okay that's, that's better um, here's Jerusalem right here Mediterranean Sea here's the Dead Sea Sea of Galilee right here so you go north up to Damascus. Uh, Do we have another one? Another map? No. No. You have your maps in the back of your Bible. Once again, that's why they're there. So uh, Acts 9, so here's the deal. Paul, Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission. What mission? To destroy Christianity. A light from heaven. Suddenly, shone down around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Who was that voice? What voice was that? It was the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God. Why are you persecuting me? So here's here's Saul. He's got his plan. And you know what? God seems silent through this whole process, doesn't it? You can imagine Christians back then praying, Lord, will you take Saul out? You know, kind of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer living in Germany with Adolf Hitler. Bad things were happening to good people. And you think of the justice of God. Where is God? In the midst of all this. God sees, he knows. And really in the lives of followers of Christ, even today, in Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan, God is pouring his grace into those individuals to withstand that kind of pressure. That's what God was doing back in Saul's time. Lord, you need to do something. Well, God was in the process. God has a timetable. And let me tell you something, every single individual that is out destroying good people will stand before God one day and give an account for their decisions and choices they made. But look at the grace of God in the process here with Saul. Saul had this all planned out, man. He could hardly wait to get to Damascus. And God does something about it a light from heaven suddenly shone down on around him. It still happens today, you know, without warning, life takes a sudden turn and suddenly God shows up on the scene, unexpected, but he was there all the time. He you gets your attention. That jolt awakens your senses just like it did with Saul. And we suddenly remember that God is in control no matter what. Talking to my sister actually, she told me this story years ago, and uh, she called me the other day um, And I was asking her a little bit more about the details of it, but um, I'm not going to give any names here, but I'll just tell you my sister can endorse this story because um, the woman who was part of this story is a good friend of my sister. They go to church together. Over a decade ago, uh, a man uh, who was an avid deer hunter. Uh, it's deer season right now, right? Is it? Bow. Bo. It's bow. <laughs> it's bow season, yeah. Uh, he always went with a friend. That's what you're supposed to do. But this time when he went out, he chose to go alone, and he was up in his tree stand. Uh, for some reason, he ended up falling out of that tree stand. He was 25 feet off the ground. His, both his lungs collapsed. He broke his back, and there were other physical issues. And in the process, uh, he knew he was dying. He just felt like his body was shutting down, and he knew he needed to get help. Immediately, but he couldn't walk. Let's hit the pause button on that. You see, this man was an angry man. He carried anger with him wherever he went. He took it out on his wife. His wife was a follower of Christ. He wasn't. He kind of modeled the character of Saul. I'm going to make life as difficult as possible for my wife and my two children because she took their children to church. And so, uh, because of that attitude, and and there were other things hitting the fan in his life, uh, he mocked Christianity, mocked God, on and on and on. And so, when he hit the ground, boom, out of that tree stand, the first thing he did was call on God. And he begged God to save his life. And he told God that he would live for him if God saved his life. And One of the main reasons why he wanted to live was he wanted to get back to where his wife was and apologize to her and make things right with her because he knew he was a brute. Yeah. He knew that he was an Oliver Kringle. Maybe you're here this morning and you could identify with that man. You treat the people you love in a bad way because you're not a happy person. And so there was a cabin off into the distance and so he crawled there. And when he got to the cabin, fortunately, there somebody was inside that was able to drive him to the hospital. And when the doctors first saw him, they were amazed that he had survived the fall. In fact, it took over two years, even just for a partial recovery for this man. But we go back to when he fell out of the the tree stand. When he cried out to God, he, he has kept his word he has placed his faith in Christ. He has reconciled with his wife and his children, and over a decade later, he's still living for Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, some of you may think that God pushed him out of the tree stand. No, I, no, God doesn't do that. You know, hey, I think I'll get his attention and just, Poof, you know, he won't know what hit him. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. But I'll tell you this, what the enemy meant for evil, bad, God took it and he used it for good. Yeah, man. That's right. And so that is another illustration, again, when you look at a hopeless situation in a human being. Because when you push God out of your life, bad things happen on the inside. And so, just like Saul, this man put his faith in Christ, and that has made a difference. (laughs) What I like, God doesn't send up, he doesn't have a a Piper Cub airplane, you know, with the banner behind it, you know, when Paul's heading towards Damascus saying, watch out tomorrow, Saul, I'm going to get you. He doesn't do any of that. He's quiet. But he does. Put a bright light on them when the time is right. And so, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when you persecute the church, and this is what's going on in the Middle East right now, uh, in Asia, other parts of the world, when, when people persecute the church, they are persecuting the head of the church. And who is the head of the church? It's Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus is, you know, he's not being arrested or anything, but his people are. And when God's people are suffering, Jesus identifies with them. To come against the church is to come against Christ. And so... Jesus knocked Saul off his horse, and just like every conversion, it's Jesus pursuing us. Jesus pursued Saul. Saul was not looking for Jesus, was he? He was looking for Christians. Jesus sought you, he sought me, he saved our souls, and what a story we can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Number one, subpoint, what Christ has done. Verse seven, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Once Paul met Christ, he was never the same man. He never mm, thought, never debated, you know, should I dabble back, you know, in religion? Wait, I, that was so much fun. Uh, you know, I'm going to ring a doorbell and run away, you know. It's like teenagers do. Uh, No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, He's transitioning now to the second part of his testimony once he put his faith in Christ. What Christ has done. Now, Lee Grady, he's he's a Christian author, and he wrote an article recently entitled How Religion Chokes Out the Life of a Church. And friends at Life Church, and those watching online, Part of the church life, church family, um, just like you individually experience that little voice in the back of your head that says, "Just chill, man. Chill. You don't need to read your Bible today. You know. Uh, yeah. You don't need to go to church today. You know. That little, that little voice in the back of your head. Just, just chill, man. You know. You're good. You're good with God. Um, I can, I can speak." With confidence on that because I have that all the time, you know, to neutralize you. You're good. Just chill. Stop pursuing your relationship with Christ. Let the weed start growing in your life again. Well, um, religion, this religion stronghold likes to get in followers of Christ. And I can tell you, I am sure uh, Saul, who became Paul, uh, he realized, man, the deathbeat of religion on a human being. He saw what it can do to people. And he chose to stay away from it and expose it. Because even after he put his faith in Christ, it was the religious community that came after him. They wanted to kill Paul. So... Uh, Lee Grady writes for us, on many occasions I've preached in churches around the world, of all the enemies of Jesus, dead religion is the worst. It's very subtle. Religion opposes biblical preaching, resists the Holy Spirit, persecutes those who truly love God, and turns vibrant faith into empty formalism. And most of all, it sterilizes churches until they die from barrenness. I grew up in one of those churches. Uh, It it really could have been a funeral home. How sad! Hmm? How sad! I'll I'll tell you this. I'll give you a little history. So, um, uh, the church I grew up in was founded by a man, and they called when they started the church. They called it Christ Church. Christ Church. That's a good name. Right. So one of the members who was very influential when when um, that pastor died and she was the pastor's daughter said, we will, you know, our sisters, the sisters of this pastor, we will we will give X amount of dollars for the new building that they were moving to a new location. We will give X amount of dollars if you change the name from Christ Church to Wittek Memorial Church. Wittek was the pastor's last name. Can you guess? Hmm? And, so, and so the board met and they decided, yeah, we'll, we'll take the bait. And they dropped Christ Church and turned it into Wittek Memorial Church. And it was a death knell. There was a remnant in the church that stayed alive, but I'll tell you what, I grew up in that, dead. Was that fun? No. No. You know, losing losing a generation of young people because of religion, of legalism, that heavy weight on individuals. It's a sad thing. And some of you may have experienced that as well. You know the pulse of a religious church, man. It's just very, very slow, very, very low. And so he's talking about we need to be careful. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy that the time would come when people who claim to know Christ would, in 2 Timothy 3.5, they will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. What does Paul say about people like that? Stay away from people like that. Stay away from them. Why? Because it's contagious. And so religion looks good on the outside. Religious people sing nice songs about God. They recite nice prayers. They dress in nice clothes, listen to nice sermons. But it can all be a show that is devoid of life. And when the Holy Spirit comes to bring new life to the church, and to renew us from the deadness of the past season, we must break free from the control of a religious spirit. A religious spirit is simply a stronghold, friend. It's a stronghold where people open the door and allow that to become part of their life. When that that comes knocking on your door, you say, no, I don't want that. I want to stay alive spiritually. I don't want to become a corpse That's breathing, right, spiritually. I don't want to do that. You have to resist it. And so the Spirit wants to bring life into our barrenness, and when he does the dead roots, little brittle branches in our churches will be pruned away, and his fruit will appear. Have you been infected by dead religion? It's a good question for all of us. You can take your own test by examining these characteristics of a religious person. So let's take the quick test. Religious people view God as cold, harsh, distant task maker rather than an approachable, loving father. Where do you land on that? When you think of God, is he cold, harsh, or is he approachable? When we base our relationship with God on our ability to perform spiritual duties, we deny the power of grace. God does not love us because we pray, read our Bibles, attend church, or witness. Yet millions of Christians struggle to find true intimacy with Jesus because they are enslaved to performance religion. Discover his amazing mercy and cultivate closeness, closeness with God. We endeavor to do that at Life Church. Religious people do outward things to prove that God accepts them. Such religious rules ostracize people and turn Christians into unhappy legalists. Religious people develop traditions and formulas to accomplish spiritual goals. Religious people become joyless, cynical, and hypercritical. Religious people develop a harsh judgmental attitude towards sinners, yet those who Ingest this poison typically struggle with sinful habits that they cannot admit to anyone else. Religious people refuse to embrace change. Religious people persecute those who disagree with their self-righteous views. And finally, religious people will not see conversions. Sinners will rarely find Jesus in a toxic religious environment. When religion takes over a church, fewer and fewer people visit the altar, the front of the church to pray. The baptismal tank stays dry. The congregation ages. There are no children in a nursery, and eventually the churches close. Why? Because religion is deadly. It's deadly. If the poisonous tendrils of religion have contaminated your walk with God, ask him to pour a fresh understanding of his grace into your barren spirit. And then expect his new life to flow through you. Let's welcome the fresh life God brings into our churches. Shall we? Yeah. I'd say I read this to you because this is something I battle all the time. You know, Just that, that little tapping, you know, Chill take it easy you've been doing this a long time get comfortable you know you you have to sl- sl- close the door on that and pr- pursue Jesus consistently why because of what Christ has done that's the priority so, once these things I thought were valuable, but, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. You want to you circle, but now. But now. Because what Paul is doing here is um, he's going back 25 to 28 years when he had the Damascus Road experience. That's why, on communion, when we serve communion and celebrate communion, we go back to the day we put our faith in Christ and we go to the cross and we look at what Jesus did for us. It's a, good, it's a good marker, you know? It's a good place to go. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. But now, 25, 28 years later, I am still looking at what Jesus has done for me and I am in awe of it. I still cannot understand his grace and his mercy in my life. That's that's what Paul is saying. It's amazing. Paul sees his past bankruptcy, and um, he has realized the change, the radical change that the Holy Spirit has done in his life, and he can't keep quiet about it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The NIV says we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that cool? We become right with God. Not out of all the stuff we try to do. It's all because of Him. It's His righteousness. Number two, knowing Christ, verse 8a. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Um, for all of you accountants out there, for all of your math majors, this this will fall right in the line with you, man. This, this is where, you, this is, your, I'm glad that's in the Bible. Because, um, circle the word worthless. And then a few Letters, words down, infinite value. So what Paul is doing, he's he's making two lists. He's looking at worth, he's got a worthless list and then he's got an infinite value list. And it's an accounting term. It's a profit column, it's a loss column. That's how he's looking at it in the Greek. It's a profit column, a loss column when he's talking about worthless versus infinite value. And so, uh, he's got a list, what he thought was all the profit column, you know, for the beginning of his life with all the rules and regulations and being a Pharisee, he thought that was all profit with religion. And he's saying, but now, that's the wrong column, man. I had that all in the wrong column. It's all loss. It's worthless. It doesn't mean anything in my relationship with Christ. The message puts it this way, verses seven through nine, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special. He says, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. It's dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want, to, I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. It's a good way of putting it, Paul. To know Christ, everything else is worthless, with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This past week, when I was thinking about that verse, um, there's a song that came to me. I, I didn't. I didn't write this song. It, it's been around a while but the title was, I want to know you, I want to know you. I want to know you, you're my one desire. I give you my worship, all of my passion. I give you my whole heart, all of my devotion. I wanna know you, let your spirit overwhelm me, let your presence overtake my heart. Oh how I love you oh how I love you so I've been listening to it and last night before I went to bed I put it on again and just kind of chilled with it Lord I want to know you I want to know you I don't know I don't want to know about you I, I don't want to have facts and in my brain Lord I want to know you Look at that verse. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. I'll be transparent with you, man. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm landing. I look at stuff today, and it's just losing its appeal. Paul is saying that stuff that I always thought was important—it's lost its value. I want to know Christ. I want to know Him. And that goes back to—to to, you know—to know—to know—is it one and done? No. It's—it's it's a continual process. Of knowing Christ. In other words, we are on this lifelong mission to know Christ more. I want to know you more. So, to know Christ means more than knowing about Him intellectually, historically. To know Christ literally means experientially, intimately, personally, it's a personal relationship. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it's a continual getting to know him more. A person convinced still to go further to know Christ. See, we've got to cultivate that, don't we? We do. And the clue here, look at what Paul, he he zeroes in. He doesn't say to know Christ, but he says, my Lord. My Lord. He's not saying the Lord. He's not saying everybody's Lord. He's saying my Lord. That's personal. It's personal. He's my Lord. See, that's knowing him. I know him and I love him because I know how much he loves me. How do you get closer to God? Well, Billy Graham was asked that question years ago and he answered it this way. To think about it, it's like any other relationship in life. We have to spend time with someone, listening to them, sharing our interests and concerns with them, learning about them, and more. And the same is true with God. How do you do that? By reading his word, the Bible, talking to him in prayer, and spending time with other believers. If we say we want to get to know the Lord and we don't spend time with him, that relationship's going to, it's a price to be paid. James 4 8, come close to God, and God will come close to you. So there you have it. Paul is saying the greatest thing that's ever happened to him was knowing Christ, and he's chained to a guard when he's writing this. It's the greatest thing. I'm going back 25, 28 years, and that was the greatest decision I ever made, and I want to change anything. I would do it over again, because this is the greatest thing, is to know Christ. And... Number three, gaining Christ, verse 8b, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. <laughs> so so many of you know that my wife, you know, was in the hospital for uh, 17 days, and so she had a plan. She had a plan. When she got home, she's throwing stuff away. And... And so that's, that's been happening, uh, just so you know. <clears throat> so so, so it's, it's still happening. It's still happening. It's ongoing. And um, yeah, so she had a plan when she was in the hospital. And when she came home, she, she's fulfilling that mission. So, so Paul, he's saying, here I am, um, here I am. Um, uh, under house arrest, but he says, "For for His sake, for Christ, I have discarded everything else, everything that would seek to grab onto me to slow down this relationship, to weigh me down, to hinder my faith in Christ. Uh, habits, addictions. He's saying none of that has a grip on me. That's what he's saying here. I've discarded everything else. I've gotten, I, I got rid of it, counting it all as garbage." Why? Because I want open hands to Christ. I don't want closed hands. I want open hands so I can embrace Christ fully. Paul's excited about that. Number four, God's way is best. Verse nine, and become one with him. Become one with him. Man, that's, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Man, Jesus going to the cross because he wants you to be with him forever. Isn't that incredible? What a demonstration of love. He wants you to be with him forever. Romans 5.11, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. I'm a friend of God. I don't have to go on Facebook, you know, and see how many likes I got. You know, I feel so bad. I didn't get all the people I thought I did. That's why I'm not on Facebook, by the way. I'm liberated. Nah. Well, we won't get into that topic right now, but he made us friends of God. Just think about that. Dave Ogren last Sunday talked about friends. You know, sometimes it's one way, you know, where you have to do all the investing in that relationship, but a real friendship is both ways. The word friend here doesn't mean a casual acquaintance, but a close trusted relationship. It's the same word that was used to refer as the best man at a wedding. So when a dude gets married, he would have his best friend be the best man. Isn't that how it works? Yes or no? Yes, yes. Yes. Your best friend is usually your best man. And and it also meant the king's inner circle of intimate, trusted friends. And so when Jesus said in John 15, 14, and you are my friends if you do what I command, some people might, a friend will let me do whatever I want. No, no. A good friend will say, dude, you better be careful. You know, you're wandering here. You're flirting with sin. Dude, I love you. You're a good friend of mine. And so I'm I'm stepping out here and I'm taking the risk to let you know you need to be careful. Jesus says, if you're my friend, you'll do what I command. And when we're friends of the king in our culture today in America, it's like Jesus is one of us. You know, yeah, he's my friend. I'm his friend. We're all we're all good. Listen, Jesus is the king. He's the king. We serve the king. Mhm. We have special privileges because we're friends with the king, but man, we are not equal with God. No sir. We're sons and daughters, and he's our loving leader and we follow him and we obey him, not out of duty or fear, but because we love him, knowing he loves us. Yes. That's for sure. Paul is saying in Christ here, we become one with him. We're in Christ. That's what makes Christians unique with all other belief systems because a Buddhist never says of being in Buddha. You know? You never hear a Muslim say, they are in Muhammad. You never hear a Hindu say, I am in Vishnu. Or Shiva, those are Hindu deities, and there's 330 more of them out there. But when you're describing what it is to be in Christ, it means God looks at you, and when he sees you, he sees Jesus. Friend, he sees Jesus because it's his righteousness that we carry with us. To be in Christ... Means God sees Christ in you; He sees Christ's righteousness, and what a gift that is. Mark Batterson, pastors in Washington D.C., and he tells about pulling out his old highlight tape from the basketball days of high school that his dad spliced together. Uh, anybody remember that? What that? was, so when I say VHS, that's what that was. That's in a museum now, but. <laughs> so this, this VHS that Mark's dad spliced together, it showed every three-point shot, every dunk, every rebound from his high school basketball career. And his dad made copies and he mailed them out to the recruiters from the different colleges that he he was hoping to attend. And so um, Mark uh, went to a a secular campus but then felt called to ministry and he's in in Bible school and he pulls out this VHS. His 80-year-old friend Wiley came over for hamburgers and so he just thought he'd show Wiley what a good basketball player he was. He put it on, and Wiley says, man, you never miss a shot. You're, you're the best basketball player I ever saw. How come you're not into pros, man? Uh, what Wiley failed to realize was the tape wasn't one game, you know? It was a compilation of games over the years, and for the moment, one person thought Mark was the greatest basketball player ever to walk the planet, but the reality was Mark's dad made him look a lot better than he really was. That's exactly what our Heavenly Father does with our game tape. Think about it. All the turnovers we've made, he's deleted. Every missed shot has been edited out. It doesn't show up on the video, and it doesn't show up in the box score. Why is that? Because Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, has edited all our sins out and replace them with his righteousness. And Jesus even says in Hebrews 10, 17, I will never again remember their sins. I'll never bring them up from the basement, you know, to make you feel guilty and shame. No, he says, I choose not to remember them. And so when we confess those sins, Jesus is editing. It's not just our sin that's edited out. It's his righteousness that's edited by the grace of God. Father, thank you this morning that you are very active in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that that little voice in the back of our head at times makes us feel guilty, not good enough. Uh, not thinking that God could love us because I'm so bad. Lord, help us realize that when we confess our sins, you're editing out those sins and you're editing in your righteousness in our lives. Man, we are so grateful for that. We are so grateful. And today, we celebrate your greatness, Lord. And the example that Paul gives us, encouraging us, to know you, Lord, to know you, to pursue you, to let that relationship flourish in the future. And today we pray by the Spirit of God, you will help us live for you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, you're online you're walking, and you're here today, Saul, Jesus, I believe who you are, who you say you are, that you're the Messiah. You went to the cross. You're the Savior of the world. You paid for my sin, dead and full. You took my place, Jesus. I should have been there. I need to pay for my sin, but you paid for my sin completely. And because of that, I put my trust in you right here, right now and I'm inviting you to come into my life and become my spiritual leader. And through the power of your spirit, I will live for you the rest of my life. Thank you for your forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for adopting me into your family today, Lord. I thank you. In Jesus' name.